it's it's really pulling all of that information in because there's so much valuable information there to guide our therapeutics. And so I think if I really think about sort of where are we headed within all of this, that's it. It's not about a particular drug necessarily. It's about being able to recognize the behavior patterns and the emotional states and being able to prescribe specifically based on need as opposed to diagnosis. What's up, everyone? In this episode, I chat with Dr. Chris Pockle about how the pandemic is affecting our dog's behavior, using behavior meds in aggression cases, as well as how some non-behavior meds and medical issues can contribute to aggressive behavior, and how vets and trainers can collaborate best to help our dogs. And this episode is sponsored by AggressiveDog.com, where you can find a variety of educational offerings with a focus on helping dogs with aggression including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, a three-day virtual event happening from October 2nd to 4th, 2020, with 10 amazing speakers. You can find out more by going to thelooseleashacademy.com. Hey, everyone. I'm here with the very compassionate and efficient Dr. Chris Pockle, who is a veterinarian, board-certified veterinary behaviorist, and a certified animal behavior consultant who owns and operates the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon. He's the vice president of veterinary behavior on the executive leadership team for Instinct Dog Behavior and Training. Dr. Paco lectures regularly, both nationally and internationally, at three different vet schools in the U.S., and as well as seminars and workshops for many other behavior professionals. And before the pandemic, Chris and I were kind of competing to see who racked up the most frequent uh, flyer miles each year. We'd both been traveling uh, quite extensively to many other countries, and we were always kind of uh, poking at each other for uh, competition over who flies the most. So obviously, we're going to have to put that competition on hold for the time being, but I will uh, certainly uh, do my best to top him next year if we start flying again. Uh, Chris and I will be teaming up for the Great Big Dog Aggression Workshop happening online. August 29th and 30th, where we will be presenting about working with aggression cases from the unique perspectives of veterinary behavior and dog behavior consulting with a focus on vet trainer collaborations. We're also slated to do that workshop in LA at, uh, for Barbara Davis at Bad Dogs Incorporated on October 31st, Halloween and November 1st, but we will see uh, as things go along with all things pandemic. So uh, without further ado, welcome, Chris. It's great to have you here. Uh, welcome, Mike. It's great to be here. I'm excited to to get the opportunity to have this this conversation with you again. I've 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 missed the opportunity to stand in in front of a room with you and to, to bounce some of these ideas and topics around. So thanks for having me on. Yes, it's it's one of those things that actually I can't believe I'm saying it, but I actually miss airports. <laughs> and uh, you know, one of my favorite things is uh, it sounds strange, but is to go to when I go to an airport is to pick a nice restaurant to eat at, and that's just like you know, air, airport food sometimes is really not that good. But it's just when I get as soon as I step in foot into the airport, I start getting hungry. So that's one of the aspects of traveling I miss. I I actually have to agree with you that there's something about the the opportunity to. Uh, to just sort of take a breath and and experience life uh, in a slightly different way 
and sort of popping into a new city and kind of exploring and seeing what the day holds and meeting new people and and just so so many things about the travel piece that I I know that you and I have had these conversations about the fact that travel can be hard too but man I really do miss it these days I really yes, do yeah me too me too so so how's everything else going on with you and your business right now so with the changes in the pandemic and, and we'll jump into the, the, how it's affecting the dogs as well but what are you seeing now or how are you kind of uh, pivoting with all of these changes yeah it's been interesting I you know I, I think about sort of the fact that you know at the time of recording of this we're we're gosh we're 3 minute 3 minutes 3 months into this process already and you know we've been working extensively through telemedicine at this point that's probably the biggest pivot that we've had whereas you know before we would have been seeing all of our clients in person and doing all of our individual uh, behavior mod sessions with my trainers and be working through all that in person with our, our our clients in and around the Portland area and, you know, I'm grateful to say that at least, you know, as as of the time of this conversation, the state of Oregon has given us the ability to establish new patient relationships via telemedicine, which is actually something we've never been able to do before. So we've had a pretty significant influx of clients seeking us out from outside the immediate Portland area. And so it's given us the opportunity to to perhaps uh, provide some resources for some of those uh, those areas of throughout the country that have been um, perhaps a little bit more starved for veterinary behavior contact over these last years. So that's been a huge, huge sh- uh, shift and pivot for us. My fingers are crossed that that becomes a permanent thing <laughs> because it's such a badly needed service and one that is in high demand. Uh, I was uh, meeting with a client in Norway yesterday via online consult, and um, that's not something you guys can do, though, right? Is do country to country telemedicine? Is that allowed? Well, here's the <laughs> thing: we we haven't fully tested the boundaries of all of this yet, but the, the way that it's working right now, at least, is that. Um, as long as myself and my team, my, my veterinarians are located within the state of Oregon, it is the Oregon State Practice License and Practice Act that governs us. And, and as of right now, there is not a requirement that the patient is also in Oregon at the time of the consult. And it really does not specify anything further than that. So again, we're, we're all sort of in these uncertain times as it relates to quarantine and COVID. And we're not quite sure exactly how long this uh, exemption to the, the, the typical client-patient relationship establishment protocol is going to be in place. Uh, but as of right now, uh, we're not really seeing that much in the way of limits, which, as you said, is, is such, a, such an amazing opportunity and, and something that we've been We've been looking for for a long, long time. I didn't want to get it this way, but I'm grateful <laughs> that it's here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's and it, I, I mean, just think of the possibilities. And you have some folks living in other countries where the knowledge of behavior meds is, is very uh, minimal. And, and including this client I was working with, you know, she's asking me, and we'll talk about the boundaries for trainers and vets. But you know, I'm doing an online consult as a behavior consultant with her, and she starts asking me about what meds should I ask my vet. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, first of all, I don't even know what's available in your country, let alone am I supposed to speak about those things. So uh, yeah. it would be a perfect opportunity to say, well, I know somebody who does and somebody that can e- you can easily reach. So 
exactly. really, really hoping that becomes a uh, permanent thing. Yeah. And the thing that's been nice about that, too, is that, you know, both with the consults that I'm doing personally, as well as the fact that I've got three other veterinarians as part of my team at the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland. So we, we really do have I mean, more availability of services currently than we've really ever had in the past, uh, which has also been a bit of a transition for us and um, has, has, has brought some really phenomenal opportunities our way so far. Looking forward to it. It's great to see your team expanding and the, the services you're offering. It's fantastic. So what about the, let's jump into the, the issues now. Speaking of all things pandemic, what are the behavior issues you're seeing more uh, increase in frequency of? Yeah, so we're getting a, a lot of different calls. Um, I would say that there's a lot of anticipatory worry, if you will, about sort of the the worry about what, what's going to happen from a separation anxiety standpoint now that people are working from home. Um, so, so I think that's sort of on, on the radar as something that we may end up seeing. And we've done a little bit of proactive work with some of our clients to, to mitigate some of those issues. Um, I would say that the majority of what we're seeing right now is really more focused with the fact that people are at home. And, and so, you know, for a lot of our patients that have more generalized anxiety issues, this is a huge departure from their normal as well. And we had a lot of, a lot of dogs, some cats too, but a lot of dogs, especially the first probably four to six weeks of the whole work from home stretch that were really, really struggling to navigate that dramatic shift within the household. And so that really, you know, brought to light not only some of the anxiety issues, but then, of course, for some of our, our, our canine patients that have perhaps resource guarding issues or other owner directed or within family problems, all of a sudden, 24 seven, right. we're sitting on top of one another. And so the intersection of those issues really, really came to a head for a lot of our clients. So uh, in that regard, with the aggression cases you're seeing, uh, is it just resource guarding that you're seeing more of an increase of or an owner-directed aggression in, in, in general circumstances? Or are you, are you seeing more specific kind of scenarios? I would say, though, there's a big ones. That, um, you know, the other, the other challenge that I think that, that we're seeing is just with the overall stress levels rising. A lot of patients who had been stable or reasonably stable with whatever their concern one, whether that whether that was noise phobia, whether it was stranger directed aggression on on walks or what have you, it sort of shifted the thresholds for a lot of our patients. As we know, that stress impacts that that line at which animals are likely to then react in a more operant way. And so what had felt pretty comfortable for a lot of our clients had to be reevaluated, not to mention some of the, the issues of now having a lot of people working from home which means those quote unquote quiet times of day when nobody else is out walking their dog that were these great opportunities for more of the stranger directed aggression cases had to be sort of re-navigated as well for a lot of our clients. Right, right. I think with the resource, I'm, I'm certainly seeing a huge spike in, in resource guarding cases. And I think it's just because that antecedent arrangement is just more more available. It's more, it happens much more often when somebody's home 24-7 with their dogs. Uh, and what about the cases where you, you see um, owner-directed aggression towards the other partner in the re relationship? So the dog's only coming, going after one person when perhaps they approach the other partner. So they go to try to sit next to their partner on the couch or in bed and you're seeing aggression there. Are you seeing an increase in that as well? Yeah, it depends on what part of the process we're at at that point in time. Meaning if I'm still really getting to know the clients on the 
front side or the early side, I'm number one, I'm going to tread very, very lightly. Um, and also, just as you said, you know, when someone asks you a question about medication and prescribing and you say, wait a minute, that's not my lane. That's very much my response in that human consulting side of things, uh, where I try to redirect the conversation, at least I'd say more often than not, is redirecting the conversation towards um, acknowledging the fact that there might be a little bit of tension there, not trying to get into it, not trying to unpack it or fix it. But if I'm seeing a change or a shift in the body language of the patient in response to that tension, it's an opportunity for me to sort of slow things down and just uh, come back to asking a question, something along the lines of, hey, do you mind if I share some of what I'm seeing right now? And then I can bring it back to the body language of the patient. And then we can sort of back our way into think, hey, is there anything that may have shifted a couple of minutes ago? Hmm, I wonder that may have shifted that could have caused this uptick in stress body language. And ideally, I'd love for my clients to be able to acknowledge it themselves. Well, yeah, we were getting a little bit heated. And then now that you mention it when we're at home, you know, so I'm going to kind of try to talk around it a little bit without trying to fix, resolve, or or dive into something that truthfully is above my pay grade when it comes to <laughs> navigating all of that. I'm like, no, that's that's not my job to fix. But but acknowledging it certainly can happen. Right. It's interesting just how much I'm sure you're seeing it now with all the Zoom calls and you're you're kind of become acutely aware of someone's facial expressions or what they're communicating uh, because you ha you have to focus on their face. So when we're you, we're working with the the animals, you sometimes focusing on making sure you know you don't get your own face bitten off, uh, or you don't have a cat flying off the top of a refrigerator at you or something like that. It's 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 different though when you're on a Zoom call because you it's you're actually focusing on that person's face. So you get a lot of tells and a lot of reads. Um, I had a, a couple that I was working with this week, and I was seeing that the one of the, the one of them and the partner was getting very quiet and just you could see it on his face. I said, "So one of the things I do to often open up, things up is just like, so we're just talking about that. How do you feel about that? Just so I can get a little bit of information from that person to see kind of where their mindset is. And that is really revealing sometimes because you can see it, you catch it at the right moment." And uh, there is a little bit of refereeing, I think, sometimes with that in that regard. But, but and it's important not to take sides. Uh, I yeah. think. I, I think there's been a few cases that come to mind over the years too, where when we recognize the impact of some of that tension, uh, we 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 sort of created a kind of a code word system, if you will, where I've had clients who've been willing to to basically make an agreement that if anybody recognizes that the dog is starting to get stressed, that if we say watermelon or purple or whatever the code word happens to be, that's an immediate signal that we just need to stop. Everybody zip it. Take a breath for the dog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to frame it. <laughs> like the dog yeah. is getting stressed. Let's just pause yeah. this for a second. And and in so many cases, whether we're talking marital stress or within family or, or roommate situations, just taking that pause for just a second, slowing it down, and then coming back into the conversation with more intention is almost always helpful. So as long as I'm able to phrase it around the dog and what the dog would benefit from, then I feel comfortable doing that. And I, I really do stay away from the, the human dynamic as much as I possibly can, even though I'm, I'm grateful to have worked alongside uh, a few different veterinary social workers over the years. So I've 
I've picked up a few skills uh, in in my consulting practice, but I, I try to be very very careful to stay back from that line where where it might start to get a little fuzzy. Right. That's a, that's such a fantastic tool. I really like that. Where you just let's do it for the dog. Let's take a I'll take a breath for the dog. Well, <laughs> really, the cool thing about that. I would have to use that. I know that we you and I have chatted about this before, but that I that concept of of you know it's not even that about me versus the owner or the owner versus the dog. It almost becomes the two owners or the three owners kind of standing shoulder to shoulder thinking, how do we help the dog? And it immediately, at least when they're able to sort of agree that that is something that we all want to do, it immediately creates this unified front versus me trying to tell people what to do. It's really just about saying, Hey, can we all agree that we're in this for Sparky's best interests? If not, well, then that's a different conversation. But if we are, this is a way to do that. Yes, exactly. It's it's um, it's also something. I, one thing I picked up on is um, when you sense the kind of disagreement that's happening uh, in, a, in the perception of something. For so, for instance, um, you know, I had like another couple this week where the you know one partner is saying that the the bites aren't that bad. You know, it's not a big deal. It's not a big thing, and you can cl- clearly tell his wife was deathly afraid of her own dog and uh sometimes we have to frame that in a way we can't because we can't take sides there but we i think we can frame it in a way that's that starts to explain and educate you know uh, the perception of dog bites and the severity of dog bites so you know i just kind of got into that conversation and asked her some questions you know how do you feel about the dog bites and she says i'm mortally terrified and you know it's something that keeps me up at night i said well okay so that's you know i can i can see that it's it's very stressful for you and so we i kind of started getting into like how dog bites have different perceptions by different people some people say you know dog that mauls somebody oh he just he just kind of nipped the guy and then on the other hand you get a dog that's just you know barely putting teeth on skin contact is just completely offensive to that person how dare they so sometimes i find it uh putting a frame of reference without saying you need to take her seriously or things like that so yeah, it's uh, you know, I, uh, what I love about what you're saying there, too, is that it's again, by, by putting something into context, you're able to, as you said, put that frame of reference around it. But it's without trying to step into their shoes or anything along those lines. It's more about saying, hey, I know a lot about dog bites. Let me tell you a little bit about this thing that's not too terribly personal. And then let's see where your scenario fits into that. And it sometimes is a lot more comfortable for people to step into that conversation. Uh, I, I use a similar technique sometimes if I, have, if I have clients who are perhaps seeing what's happening with their pet in a slightly different framework. I may use more of the standpoint of, well, you know, you know Sparky better than I do. I know a lot about dogs. So if I tell you a lot about dogs, then we can figure out which pieces of that are relevant for Sparky. And then together we can collaborate on whatever that plan would be. But it's not necessarily me coming out and telling them that they're either right or wrong. It's providing that structure or that framework that you mentioned. So let's talk about um, Sparky and if Sparky needed meds. Because there's, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are dying to hear about more about behavior meds. And uh, especially in the context of aggression. So I know this is, of course, a broad question. You can, you know, each case is going to be different. Uh trends what do you think trends and what do you see working well new things on the horizon um so i'll let you take it from there what do you what do you have going on with that 
Yeah, you know, I would say it's an it's an ever evolving subject is probably the, the 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 easiest way to sum that up in a few words. But as you know, I never do anything in just a few words. So as we think about how all of these pieces fit together, gosh, well, how would I say that? Well, I think in order to answer that, I'm going to take a quick step back and and say when I'm working aggression cases, especially when we start thinking about meds. It's really important for me that I differentiate the emotional response that the animal is feeling from the aggressive response that the animal is doing. And the reason that's so important is that medication does not treat aggression. Medication may, depending on how well we've sort of honed in on what that animal may benefit from, it affects arousal levels, it may affect thresholds, it may shift emotional responses, it may change thresholds in a variety of different ways that, you know, so it changes a lot and they can be incredibly impactful. But what we're really treating is the underlying emotional state that may be precipitating into that aggressive response or that may be the underlying reason why the aggression is actually occurring. So I really try to be very careful, especially if someone says, well, you know, what's what type of med would you use for this type of aggression? I really need to know a lot more about that animal to try to figure out, is this an animal that is in more of a state of panic versus an animal who is very much in control of what's happening, but they escalate really, really quickly. Those are two very different med protocols for me, even if they both have the same quote unquote diagnosis of fear-based aggression. And so I'm looking at that that underlying emotional state and, and really trying to think about it from the standpoint of of coping skills, if you will, even saying, okay, in this circumstance, if we're asking the dog to respond differently in a hopefully more safe manner, what's getting in the way of that? Is it that emotional arousal level that we need to, or would potentially be able to, to, to reduce even temporarily to be able to allow for uh, additional learning to occur? Or are we trying to modulate something specific related to serotonin levels or norepinephrine levels or, you know, something else specific that we're trying to target? So, you know, the, the, the kind of the general view of that is that we've got to come back to the emotional response rather than looking at anything as a sort of a knee jerk diagnosis equals treatment standpoint. Now, I will say just as we're talking about this the viewpoints on these particular discussions, this is not something that is necessarily equally or universally held amongst all of my colleagues any more than, you know, every single trainer or behavior consultant would would, would treat an aggression case on, from, a, from a behavior mod standpoint exactly as you would. There's, a, there's the sort of different flavors and different approaches. And so what I'm sharing here is really the way that I tend to approach that and the way that, that most of my team members approach that same that same concept. And then, then we start to get creative when we really look at what's been tried already, uh, knowing that the vast majority of our patients come to us having already trialed one, two, or three different right. behavior meds already. And so it's not enough for me to say, quote unquote, did it work or not? What did you see? What was the baseline energy level? What was the speed of escalation? What was the intensity of that response? Did you see any side effects? Was the appetite affected? Any other gastrointestinal issues? We're really trying to tease out as much as we can about that animal's response to, in a really educated way, then guide what we think the next best option is going to be, fully incorporating all of that. So 
so again, I'd, for me, it's it's about gathering all that information and making an educated decision versus having a checklist and being like, nope, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. Next, it's it's really pulling all of that information in because there's so much valuable information there to guide our therapeutics. And so I think if I really think about sort of where are we headed within all of this, that's it. It's not about a particular drug necessarily. It's about being able to recognize the behavior patterns and the emotional states and being able to prescribe specifically based on need as opposed to diagnosis. So if I was, if you were presented with a patient that says, yeah, we've tried the Prozac, do you get a lot of pushback when you say, well, let's, let's try it again, or let's, we have to tweak that, or maybe we need to supplement it. Do you see a lot of that happen? Yeah, it really depends. I, I think for me, a lot of that is, is how we frame the conversation. And if I'm looking at a case history where my brain is saying at this point in time, man, if I were seeing this dog without having any other meds on board and meds had never been tried, if, if my brain says Prozac or fluoxetine really seems like the right option, but then I go back to the history and say, well, we already trialed it. If that's the way that I'm approaching it, then my, then my brain either says, okay, well, if the animal responded negatively, then I'm certainly not going to, to revisit that particular medication protocol. Well, actually, sometimes I would if there were some adjustments that we could do from a dosing standpoint or a method of administration that may give us a different response, then that's my opportunity to, to, to ask the client. In some ways, I may say, do you trust me? Yeah, I'm usually not quite that blunt or blatant about it, but I'm going to have that conversation saying, cool, let's pretend for just a second your dog has never been on meds. These are the top two meds that I would reach for. How do you feel about that? You know, are there any thoughts that come to mind when I mention potentially retrialing a med or even just saying medication as a buzzword at all? Are there any thoughts that come to mind? If so, sometimes that may inform how that owner may have actually perceived the animal's med response. And there may be more that we can tease out either by perhaps starting more conservatively with dosing and gradually onboarding a med protocol or helping them to understand that in some cases, for example, sometimes a mild amount of sedation isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world in the first week or so. But if we push beyond that, many patients will acclimate to it. So right. a different level of understanding around what we're looking for and what we're hoping to accomplish sometimes changes everything about the actual perception of the owner. And sometimes, as you know, when we change that perception, the way in which they're describing behavior also changes. So it gives me a brand new opportunity. I imagine that a lot of uh, patients that come to your clients that come to since you're a veterinary behaviorist, they they kind of they're assuming there's medical meds component, right? Because they they probably looked at it a little bit, or you know they're assuming something, or at least are comfortable with that conversation to a degree. It varies, you know. I I really I, I hear that a lot, and and we get you know we get pushback as well, even with some of our cases where we have a mindset we're thinking, wow, you know, you've perhaps tried a lot of things, you're already managing this patient really really well, and you've got a solid behavior mod plan in place already, so meds may be the next logical assumption, and we get pushback on that from some of our clients as well. And so for me, it's not about whether or not we will or won't do it, or that there's an assumption of it. 
Um, the way that my team typically approaches that conversation at the time of scheduling is to say, the doctor is going to discuss all of the available options or the relevant options with you. And together, you'll come up with a plan that we all think is going to work and is comfortable for imp implementation. And so I do think that that sort of shifts the expectations a little bit for our clients, especially for those who may have a real strong bias in one direction or the other as it relates to med use, where they hopefully aren't quite as gung-ho about assuming that it's only going to be a meds-based consult or that meds are going to be perhaps required for treatment. We'll meet them where they are and we'll figure out exactly what needs to happen next. How do you encourage clients that they've tried with another vet several different approaches? So they've gone from one med to another med, and then they've they they've, you know, and, and the period of time that it might take that you know with with meds that can take to see if they're effective, and then the washout period, and then re-implementing the new meds. So they've been through a couple of things, and they get to you, and they're exasperated. What's your conversation like there? Yeah, uh, number one, I think it's about acknowledging the frustration. You know, really just sort of saying, "Hey, I get it." I really, really do. Uh, and there are certain elements that we can't change. There's no way to accurately predict what your dog is going to do in response to the next round of treatment. I'd love to be able to take all this information and give you a guarantee. I can't. The question that I often reframe to the owners is, do you want things to be better than it is right now? Is that your goal? Okay, then let's talk about options that we have, which might include revisiting meds or trialing different combinations. Uh, and sometimes I think clients really just need to be heard and to have someone acknowledge that, yeah, this is tough stuff, that this is not perhaps the the dog or the experience that they thought they were getting and and that there's going to be some some work and some some ups and some downs in the process and in trialing different med opportunities is is really an, another part of that process. So I, I think some of it is, is is a reframing piece and, and and acknowledging where they're at and then seeing what they're willing to invest or sacrifice to see what happens next. It's, it's just, certainly the human side of the equation pops out again in all of these scenarios. So uh, let's talk about situational meds a little bit. Uh, you know, and we're not naming names or, or specific meds at this point, but what, what do you do, uh, you know, a, a significant question I get is for clients that live in cities or they're living in environments where it's very difficult to control the threshold um, or they're put, the dog's going to be put in situations that are extremely stressful for them, regardless of how much we arrange the environment. So, so drop some knowledge there. What do you, what do you usually do in those cases? Yeah. So there's, I, in order to do that, like I, I, I actually, was, I would look at the same sort of three-step question process for every case where I'm considering meds. And, and I'll be honest, I consider meds for every single patient that I see. What I mean by that is that for me, meds includes diet change. It includes pheromones. It includes nutraceuticals. It also includes pharmaceuticals but it's that whole sort of broad category. So to say that I, I consider meds for every single case is accurate. I don't always recommend them. In many cases, we may say, no, the management BMOD plan is really where we need to start. But for me, that's that first question. Am I treating a patient that I think has the potential to benefit from meds, which usually means that we're treating something in the way of fear, anxiety, stress, arousal, compulsive disorder, or something along those lines. Then I go into the second question, which is really the one we're looking at right now, which is situational or event medication versus daily meds or more maintenance style meds. Something that's on board that takes multiple weeks to kick in and so on. And there are advantages and limitations of both of those options. 
right? If we're talking about the long-term, let's say Prozac type meds, they often do take a longer period to onboard. And so if we've got that dog that's in acute crisis, that's probably not good enough. But once we get that med onboarded, assuming that we get the right effect, it's gonna be much, much more stable and more likely to have a lasting impact for that dog. When we start thinking about more of the situational or event meds, the huge advantage that we have there is that, gosh, you know, for the most part, what you see is what you get. You give a dose, you wait 60 minutes, and that's the med's effect. So we have the ability to titrate and adjust that really, really rapidly. Sometimes in as little as you know three to five days, we might try three different medications at two different dosages and maybe even start to dive into some combinations. So we can be really aggressive because it doesn't take that time. So I love the advantage of that. The downside, though, is sort of related to that, is that they, they take effect quickly, but then they're gone. So if I have a med that's only on board for, let's say, six hours or seven hours or eight hours, the reality is if that, if that pet is in 24-hour-a-day crisis, what we can see is almost more of a scalloping of effect where, you know, almost like if we were trying to control long-term chronic pain with something like an aspirin. Well, you feel better right after you take the med, but a couple hours in, it's not quite as good. And then at some point your pain level goes, oh no, I really need to take another dose of meds. And then we're back riding, riding the high and feeling good again. And so with a situational med, there can be a limitation there where we have to really be able to dose frequently enough that we're able to resemble something that's giving us a steady state effect. Otherwise, I actually think for some of our patients, we may actually, I'm not going to say do more harm than good, but I worry that we're actually creating a bit of a roller coaster experience over that 24 hour day. So that requires a fair amount of discussion and, and triage and understanding of duration of action and dosages and, and how the effect might even change low dose versus high dose, which is where the art of practicing the, be, the behavioral med side of things really kicks in. And that there, folks, is why we need veterinary behaviorists, <laughs> because <laughs> you're dropping a lot of subtle nuances there. And, you know, and you mentioned just, you know, sometimes you, you need to be aggressive with what you're trying, because I think that's what a lot of, um, at least my clients run into, is that they go to their general vet. And I'm certainly not knocking general vets, but again, that's not their specialty. That's why we have veterinary behaviorists. And they will try one thing, but they will try it for a long time time so they'll give the situation med but they it's just the same same thing spinning the wheels over and over and over without really parsing out those subtle nuances that are so important to assessing the efficacy of that med so yeah. yes yeah and it's it's, it's something that, that kind of piggybacks on that too is that you know the general practice veterinarians are just a phenomenal source of 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 help to so many of our clients as as, as you said i mean we're this is not in any way a slight However, the time that it takes to tease out those nuances and to have a detailed enough knowledge that you can really walk a client through, this is the med, this is what it's likely to do. Here are the things that for your dog, I need you to keep track of so that I know if it's actually working. And so many times, you know, because of timing or because of other limitations, I, I find that clients may walk away with sort of the perspective of, I walked in with a problem, I I walked out with a prescription and either works or it doesn't. And there's so much more nuance to the conversation that can happen 
if we can connect those clients with someone, you know, like myself or someone with my certifications who has the ability to to really get into that nuance and to really understand what's what's actually working and what's not. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, so let's let's pivot a little bit more here. I want to talk about dogs that are purpose bred to do to display certain aggressive behaviors. So we might let's say have a working line Malinois come to see you. And they're, they're displaying uh, protection of the owner. Where where does where do meds fit into that equation? Because I, th- I think it's debatable f- for a lot of behavior professionals. Is does that is that dog doing something that's normally inherently bred genetics, uh, or is it something where meds can apply and be helpful for? Yeah, I think that that's a great question, and that that for me is 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 a great way to start teasing out those details of you know are we using meds for a particular diagnosis. Or are there other patterns that also need to be to be factored in there? And you know, we certainly certainly see those patients coming through the office as well, where we look at a particular pattern and we say, well, if we just tweaked one or two variables and adjusted this little thing, we would actually call this a normal behavior for this age or this breed of dog. And so, is this pathology? Is this necessarily an emotionally driven behavior that is something that, you know, again, coming back to those indications for med usage where we're thinking about fear, anxiety, stress, hyperarousal, compromised uh, executive function or decision making capacities, things of that nature. If this is a functional, functionally significant pattern for that animal, meds may not have a huge impact there. Now, sometimes even in those cases, meds, if, if we, if we quote unquote, do it right, sometimes just slowing that dog down a little bit to allow us more intervention time may allow a greater receptivity to be mod compared to what we might otherwise have. But even still, what I have to then think about is that the med is not necessarily affecting the behavior pattern itself. It's just giving time for the be mod to work. Or for someone who may not have, you know, lightning fast reflexes, you know, or the level of experience that someone like yourself has when you're working the dog, it gives them time to then do something about it. So in those cases, med use may take on a slightly different flavor, not better or worse, just different focus, which then comes back to why are we using it? What are we expecting? Are we setting up realistic expectations and so on? Yeah. So again, getting back into the real specialization of things there, both from the men component and understanding the breed and, and the behavior, lots of uh, nuances there. Um, so going to put you on the spot for a second and ask you, because this is something I've been running into too, is seeing men, so non-behavior meds that are causing or the side effect is aggression or behavior issues so right off the top five that you see top five meds because a lot of our listeners i think would would appreciate the education on this aspect yeah so i would say there are three probably three meds that come to mind more often than anything else um and two of these have been around a really really long time um steroids prednisone um there's a there's a subset of the population that we're if we're using prednisone in particular for itch or inflammation that we can see aggression for a variety of reasons, whether that's because it's creating a level of irritability, or if we have a dog who may have had, let's say, a low-level resource guarding issue in the past, and now prednisone is on board and it's ramping up that appetite, and we now see a dog who's uh, showing a heightened level of arousal in proximity to food. So prednisone or steroids can, can fit on that list. 
I actually have seen a fair number of dogs over the years uh, that have responded negatively to uh, to um, proin or PPA, which is a phenylpropanolamine um, uh, medication that's used for urinary incontin incontinence, typically in adult female dogs. It can be used in males too, but it's almost always a, a female issue. And it actually, it's as a medication, it functions essentially as a stimulant. And so we will see some dogs that will show an increase in agitation or uh, anxiety in some cases, or perhaps uh, aggression as an operant behavior uh, after starting that particular medication. There's also, you know, one of the one of the newer medications that we're using that is, I mean, fortunately, really, really effective for controlling allergy signs, and that is a drug called Apoquel that has had some reports um, of of animals showing aggression who had not previously shown aggression, and the data is a little bit a little bit fuzzy. So I, 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 if you hear a little bit of hesitation in my voice, especially when we're talking about a particular <laughs> drug, it's, it's yeah. real, right? Like I, I'm it's, always, I'm open to considering the fact that that could be the issue. You're not making any official statements for the record. No, and, and it's such an effective <laughs> drug for so many other reasons that I don't want right. people to be like, oh my God, my dog's on Apple. <laughs> no, great. If your yeah. dog is fine, run with it. It's amazing. It works really, really well. And there's a really small subset of the population that may show that may show some concerning behaviors. So, I mean, I would say those are probably the, the, the top three that come out as specific categories for me. The other piece that I would say kind of, you say top five, and I'm going to kind of broaden it out just a little bit by <laughs> saying, I, I think sometimes we underestimate the effect of not feeling well and a level of irritability on behavior and aggression thresholds. So this isn't as much about medication, but more about that general impact of underlying medical yeah, I, un I love that unwell. That. Yep. Oh man, yeah. it's so common. I mean, I even think I had, I had a, a veterinarian come up to me after a, a seminar that I gave um, in Minneapolis a year or two ago. And she said, well, you know, I was, I was thinking as you're describing just this general impact on, again, thresholds and tolerance levels and resilience and all of that. And she said, I just, I happened to have a couple of patients in my office over the last week who were English bulldogs who have significant airway issues. She's like, have you ever thought, or has anybody ever looked at the actual impact on those dogs, not perhaps ever achieving REM sleep? And for some of the irritability issues, are these dogs chronically hypoxic, chronically sleep deprived? in a way that is dramatically impacting their baseline level of behavior. And I was like, <laughs> yes. I don't know. I don't Mind know that anybody's blown. looking at that, yeah. but yeah, it's like, yeah. I think, you know, so I think about yeah. things like chronic allergy issues. I think about anything that's causing sleep deprivation, whether that's underlying medical or perhaps even the new baby in the household. Um, you know, I think about anything that's, that's creating that just edgier patient because they're just not showing up as their best self that day. And that's, I think, really under-recognized. Yeah, I 100% agree. 100% agree. I mean, it's, you see it. And the thing that what really gets to me is the dogs that are, the pain isn't being diagnosed, you know, correctly. And so and it's hard to find people that can recognize that too. It's not, it's kind of, again, its own specialty of somebody being able to say, this dog's in pain. Let's run this test or that test. Or, and that's a, that's a difficult uh, channel to navigate. Which, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. Well, let's talk more about vet and trainer relationships in just a moment. But I can't skip over what you had mentioned before, which is diet. What's the latest on diet? And 
and its effect on behavior. It's such a interesting topic. Yeah, the conversation. So, you know, what's the latest and the greatest? I, I guess my my approach to diet when it comes to to behavioral issues, there's a couple of different avenues that we explore. I mean, certainly we look at the impact of, of quality food on overall behavior, actually for the exact same reasons we were just talking about. If you don't feel well, if your gut hurts, if, if again, can that just be a chronic, chronic issue? Um, I, I'm going to come back to the quality piece on that in just a second, because the other piece is sometimes we look at either protein amounts based on sort of ins and outs of dietary requirements, or in some cases, uh, you know, I've worked with with practitioners over the years who look at dietary therapies almost more, not almost more, truly from more of a Chinese medicine perspective, looking at whether beef versus chicken versus turkey versus lamb may have more of an energetic quality on the actual disposition or arousal level of the patient. Uh, and I, I try not to speak too much about that because I don't have the full understanding of, of Chinese vet med and how that really factors in. But it is something that we will explore in, in cases to, to see whether or not there may be a component there. And it, thinking about that and coming back to that quality comment that I made before, it brings me back to what I think my overall perspective is on diet. And that is to be curious to never assume that a particular food is going to be the best option for all dogs or for this dog until you actually get it in that dog's body and you evaluate the effect. I mean, we, we, we can compare pro, pro, you know, protein amounts and the nutrient profiles and we could say raw is better, raw is worse, uh, dehydrated is this versus we can have all of those arguments and have our own sort of firmly entrenched emotional beliefs. And we can argue all of that, but the only real way to know whether or not it's going to work for an individual is to put it in their body and to see what happens next. That's just the way it is. The study of one, as Dr. Friedman would say, right? Exactly. And I think in the yeah, nutrition is one of those places, right? I and mean, we can, and then certainly there are valid concerns about perhaps safety issues of feeding something, you know, like a raw diet. And please know that if, if anybody has, you know, profound concerns one direction or the other, I'm not necessarily siding with one camp or another on this. I'm basically just saying that if, if it's safe to try for that particular patient, you're never going to know if it's the right option or the wrong option until you do try it. So it's you got you got to stay curious. You got to stay open. I've I've been shown to be wrong more times than I <laughs> admit. Uh, but you know what? The, the animal will tell you if you listen. Um, protein percentage. You had mentioned that a little bit. I know there's been some data or research on that. Anything new on that front? Anything? Any other research seen, lately? No, no, at least nothing that I've seen or that I've come across. Um, and I think that the biggest place where we tend to, to trial that is especially if we're seeing animals that we're seeing a significant level of uh, arousal, for lack of a better way of sort of narrowing it, the, the, the conversation further. And if we happen to look at their dietary intake and if they're feeding one of the higher protein foods, um, I'll come back to what higher means in just a second, that, you know, one of the things that we can trial is to say, well, what would happen if we drop that protein amount? We usually only need to trial it for about 10 to 14 days, in my experience, before we know whether or not it's likely to have an impact. So let's try it. Let's see what we see. Um, I think for me, if I'm really doing a therapeutic trial in that range, I'm usually aiming for a protein amount that's maybe somewhere in the 22 to 25, 
26, 27, fine. I'm not going to split hairs there. Mm -hmm. But it's when I see a protein amount, at least on a, on a dry matter basis, where we may have a protein amount that's 34, 38, 46, you know, the that can be a lot. And that isn't necessarily what every dog needs, even if they happen to be a pretty active dog. So we try something lower. If the animal is better, awesome. Now we've got a new data point to work with. If there's no perceived difference in behavior, then this animal's body system doesn't really care about that particular variable. Now you can feed what you want. So it's about trial and error, trial and right, observation. Right. This kind of had me thinking uh, an interesting research project for somebody would be to see how much behavior has changed since the whole DCM scare <laughs> and the, how diet has changed so much. Uh, obviously, that would be very difficult to study. But and, and that actually is a really good point, Mike. When we're talking about all of these, you know, these, all of these, these questions that we want to know the answers to, behavioral research is really, really hard to do. There's so many variables. There's so many confounders in trying to tease out what, in fact, makes the difference mm -hmm. and what might be a bit of a red herring. It's so hard. It is. It is. So let's segue into trainer-vet relationships. And, and I know a lot of listeners, especially the trainers, are going to be wondering, you know, how do I get into talking to a veterinary behavior? How do I make that relationship with vets? Um, and I will say this so you don't have to say it, uh, is that as trainers and consultants, we shouldn't be recommending specific treatments, diagnosis, meds, or anything like that. I think uh, one of the questions I get a lot from my students is, you know, what do I do if my uh, certain client's vet doesn't know about meds and the, the vet's asking me or um, or the client's asking me. Again, it's, it's out of our scope of expertise to be recommending anything specific. But what I always tell my students is it's absolutely okay to say, talk to your vet or talk to this guy, Chris Pockle out there in Portland, he's going to be able to help you out and we're going to be able to work as a team. So I just wanted to, to preface the conversation with that. Uh, but what do you, what do you say to trainers again, if they want to say they, they want to meet you or they want to, they, they feel like, Whoa, this, you know, the veterinary behaviors, how do I get in to talk to them or, um, or my general vet, how do I find somebody that knows about behavior meds? So. Yeah, there's, there's so many different ways to, to start that conversation and, you know, as much as I would absolutely love to sit down with every single person who is listening to this podcast and say, hey, you know, tell me about you. Tell me about your scope. Tell me about how we can collaborate. The reality is I don't have that time. I mean, and so if, if someone does reach out and they want to have a conversation, I may actually just have to say no. So that you, I, I mean, I can't give everybody your cell phone number after this. <laughs> nine, seven. No, uh, <laughs> no, but I, but I, I, I preface it that way because it, it is, it is my goal, right? And when anybody who's heard me at, at conferences, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the line for questions at the end of the day is super long. My rule is I'm the last one out of the room. That, that is, that is my hard and fast rule because there's an opportunity to share information and, and to help everybody grow in the process. And I learn just as much as I share when I get into those conversations. So the, the drive is there, the number of hours in the day just isn't. And so then what, how are we gonna do that? And so I think, you know, one of the ways to sort of tease this out is one, if we've got people who are looking for information, truly looking at podcasts like this, and we'll talk about where they can find some of my other recordings when we get to the end of the call, but that's one place to gather information so that when they do get contact with someone like myself or one of my colleagues, we can have a, a really educated conversation about what they truly need versus covering basics that have already been covered perhaps elsewhere. And then the other side is actually making a personal connection with a clinician. 
Uh, and whether that's their primary care veterinarian and we're starting to work with cases where we may want to involve more of that medical assessment or perhaps behavioral meds, uh, or whether they're making a referral to to a veterinary behaviorist. I, I personally find that that's easiest to do when it's focused on an individual case. Uh, and that's a personal bias for me. Other, other clinicians may respond differently, but it's um, I, I can definitely say, yeah, it's great if you reach out and say, hey, I want to have a relationship in place so that when I have a client who needs your services, we've got that relationship. And I love that approach. Uh, and that'll that'll certainly allow us to establish what are those referral uh, methods? What are the channels? How do we do that? And then the question becomes, OK, what are we going to do with that information? And I find that we it's so much easier to establish a really strong working relationship when myself and the trainer or the behavior consultant are essentially standing arm in arm right with the owner, basically saying, well, here's what's in my toolbox. What's in yours? Well, this is what's in my toolbox. What's in yours? And collectively, we're able to collaborate on those cases. So we do actively uh, encourage trainers and behavior consultants to participate as much as they can within the consulting process, whether that's sending us notes ahead of time and asking that we send notes back or whether it's actually including them on the call in certain cases when we're doing a consult. How would, would you recommend, let's say I've got a trainer, goes to the client, uh, to the vets with the client, get to their, they send the behavior notes ahead of time. You get there and the, the, the doctor says, you know, let's, let's, this, is, this is great. I, I love the notes. What, what you should do is you should alpha roll your dog and I'm going to give you some Benadryl and some Ace Promazine to take home with you. What does the trainer do at that point? How, how, do you, how would you navigate that conversation? Yeah, well, number one, that would never, ever happen under any circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes it does. I know it does, guys. I know it does. I'm sorry. We're, we're trying. We're trying. Um, yeah, so it's it's tough, right? I mean, it's it, it truly is one of those situations where in the moment, it can be a really tricky one to navigate. Um, if you come on, I'm going to say, too strong. I don't, I don't like those words as I'm saying them, but if you come on and basically say, well, no, I learned because I listened to Dr. Pockle on this podcast <laughs> with, with my Cascio, that you should, you know, if you come on that way, that's probably not going to be well received. At the same token, I think it's always an option to ask questions. And whether this is the client or perhaps the trainer or behavior consultant to say, oh, you know, that, you know that's awesome. Um, you know, even just acknowledge, cool, I appreciate your input. What is it that we're hoping to accomplish with that treatment? Are there any side effects that we might expect from this treatment? How does this stack up against other treatment options that might be available? If we were to consult with a behavior specialist, do we think they would give the same answer? You know, asking those questions from the standpoint of curiosity typically uncovers whether whether we've got someone who who really doesn't have a lot of understanding and they're simply doing what they were taught to do, or whether they really believe firm you know firmly that this is the right way, or do we have someone who's operating with a full skill set? And this, in fact, may actually be. I mean, what you described is probably not ever the right approach for navigating a particular <laughs> cases, but you know, maybe there's a reason why they, why that's the first thing that comes to mind for them. Um, but I think we're going to get a lot farther by asking questions than than we will by sort of jumping in to share conflicting knowledge. And worst case scenario, I mean, I I really struggle with the concept of putting a client in the middle, where they're then trying to have to choose between their trainer and their vet 
where they may have actually really long lasting relationships that mean a lot to them. And now we're basically asking them to choose by saying, "Uh uh-uh, what he said, what she said was wrong. You should do this instead. It's well-intentioned, but man, it puts clients in a really tough spot. I can, uh, the questions that you presented uh, clearly show that you've had this conversation before. So I really appreciate you, uh, you, you kind of giving a nice little truncated list for people to try and, and use. It's, it's actually brilliant. It's uh, such a great way to um, get more information without attacking somebody. Um, so in that regard, to kind of finish up here, where would you like to see kind of more of the vet trainer, vet behaviors trainer uh, collaborations go in the future and how do you, how do you envision seeing that or what do you think would impact that the most right now? So yeah, I think the impact is, is something that I'm, I'm, I'm working on in a couple of different, couple of different ways. I think the, the biggest, the biggest collaboration benefit that I see is the opportunity to really help both the animals and the clients advance from where they are. And that requires a level of openness on everybody's part. Right. As a trainer or behavior consultant, we have to, to, to know that somebody else has a different skill set than we do. And there may be some conflicting information that they might not have heard. Susan Friedman, as you, you know, mentioned her name before, they may not know who that is. Doesn't mean that the information they have coming through the veterinary channel is necessarily wrong, but it may be different. And that's where we have to be open and at least um flexible enough to hear what's being said and to ask perhaps some of those questions that we talked about before, and then together we can decide what works. So we have to have that sort of openness and a willingness to collaborate. And I think that's one of the things that I I, I believe that we're seeing within the industry is a greater level of awareness of what actually constitutes an appropriate level of skill, credential, accreditation, whatever word we decide to put on it, that really says, yes, this is someone who's who's done the work, who is actually in possession of a level of skill that that creates the level of knowledge that we can call them a behavioral professional. And, and I love the fact that I think we're getting more of that, that visibility and professionalism uh, from a couple of different angles. I think that is going to really, really drive us forward. Excellent. So continuing to build the bridges and the relationships between the, all professionals in our industry. Absolutely. Wonderful. Dr. Pockle, thank you so much. Um, well, you can find us actually at, again, just to remind everybody at Behavior Vets is hosting us online uh, August 29th and 30th for the great big dog aggression workshop where we're going to be talking about a lot about the things we were talking about during the podcast, but uh, many other things with uh, case studies as well, which a lot of people get excited about. And we'll also be again at uh, Bad Dogs Incorporated, if all things go well, with travel on Halloween this year and November 1st. Where can people find more about you, Chris? Yeah, so the easiest place to track me down is going to my my, my personal slash professional website, which is drpockle.com, a very creatively named. Uh, so drpockle.com, go there. Uh, there's it's, it's broken out by speaking engagements that are upcoming, which I try to keep updated. There's a few that are that have not quite made the list yet, but I'm working on it. Uh, and then especially some additional, uh, some little short video clips, uh, some full length lectures that I've put up there that are available for free, as well as, oh gosh, 10 to 12 different podcast recordings that are already up there as of the time of recording this on a whole variety of top, 
risks. Um, some cases looking at client communication strategies, other looking at differentiating fear from anxiety and why does it matter. Uh, all of that's available through drpockle.com. Dig in, find me there. Wonderful. Chris, thanks so much. And I will see you soon. <laughs> yes. August. That is perfect. Thank you so much, Mike. And if people are looking for any additional help uh, specifically for consulting, they can get there through that drpockle.com site, but they can also look directly at the animalbehaviorclinic.net. Uh, they'll get the opportunity to get on the schedule either with myself or one of my other three veterinarians who are all seeing behavior cases through the practice. Perfect. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for The Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, or give a rating to the episode. And don't forget to hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the Loose Leash Academy for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues.